Welcome to the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast, or GRASP for short. We release weekly podcasts featuring insights from leading surgeons and other surgical professionals. Our host for today is Mr. Nathan Nagel. He is a successful serial medical entrepreneur with 25 years of experience in medical, surgical, medtech and biotech businesses. We hope you enjoy the GRASP podcast. Welcome. And today we have a special guest of Mr. Julian Evans, who's a consultant neurosurgeon from Manchester. Uh, today we're going to uh, learn more about uh, uh, Julian himself on how he got into this, his background, his thoughts and how he approaches everything. And then also learn a little bit more about uh, neurosurgery and robotics and stereotactic and functional surgery. So, Mr. Evans, give the audience an overview of you, please, sir. Well, firstly, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's uh, a privilege and uh, pleasure to be joining you. I've listened to your previous guests and heard about the work that they do. So it's very humbling to be uh, amongst such companies. So thanks for having me. Um, my background really, uh, much unlike many of my colleagues, um, I didn't really have any sort of calling to neurosurgery. Um, I didn't really have a calling to medicine at all, if I'm honest, in that when I left school, um, I set out on a career in civil engineering, believe it or not, um, but very soon realised that reinforced concrete didn't turn me on very much. <laughs> um and so after a, about a year or so I, I parted ways with the slide rule um but it's ironic really that i've sort of come full circle in that what i do now is basically use engineering principles and technologies to uh to tackle the demands of functional neurosurgery so um it's funny how things work out um anyway after i left engineering i've had a fairly standard british training i went to medical school in the uk in cardiff in south wales um hence the accent um undertook a basic surgical training rotation again in south wales and then had stints in neurocritical care in southampton and brooks hospital in cambridge before getting a, a neurosurgery training number in manchester which is where i've been ever since, aside from a fellowship, a 12-month fellowship at Bristol under the tutelage of Professor Gill, where I largely learned deep brain stimulation. Um, and then I've taken that back to Manchester, where I was appointed as consultant in 2010. And that's where I've been ever since and uh, built up a functional neurosurgery practice from there. Well, you may be surprised, but at least... Um half of the top people that we talk to actually have engineering backgrounds as well. So I'm not you really, I think it's, you're, you're in good company for that. Well, I think the reason I chose engineering was my love of maths. And I've probably gone back to that because obviously yeah. what we do involves a lot of, well, uh, maths basis to it anyway. Um, so that was not probably the same for my colleagues who've done the same, I dare say. So with that, so a lot of the top people who've got that background, do you think that they maybe should be a little bit of a slice of an engineering course in the surgical rotation? I think functional neurosurgery is such uh, a small 
subspecialty within neurosurgery, I think it would be difficult to incorporate uh, that into a general neurosurgery training program. But I think those who have an interest in functional neurosurgery, certainly I think it helps. Now, I, I know that um, I've read that you work on the uh, the DBS side for predominantly movement uh, disorders, whereas I know that there's right. a whole functional area for uh, neuropsychiatry as well, which is we can touch on, but I know that's a whole different discussion. So um, now I've read, but you're the expert, you tell me, that some of the benefits in robotics is to do with the uh, less error, when we're talking point like 001 or something like that, of the lead placements. And yeah. So accuracy is certainly one issue. So the benefits of the robot are, are many, really. Um, it essentially enables us to use the precise engineering technologies to, to meet the challenges that we face. And if you take deep brain stimulation, for example, the challenge is to insert an electrode with submillimeter accuracy to a specific nucleus or tract deep within the brain, deep as you dare go, really, um, to a target that to which you're blinded by the skull and the intervening brain, basically through a pulsating jelly and without hitting any of the myriad blood vessels or eloquent brain structures along the way. So it's not an inconsiderable challenge that needs to be met. And inaccuracy in that regard can at best result in a suboptimal clinical outcome and at worst severe disability or, or potentially even death. Um, so accuracy and safety are, and repeatability, predictability are obviously of paramount importance and the robot uh, is uh, ideally suited to that. And a number of series have been published and we've done our own work, which shows that the robot is capable of that degree of accuracy. Um, in fairness, the before the robot came along, the frame and arc based techniques we used to use were also by necessity accurate. Um, but I think the robot allows us to do that in a more seamless fashion um, and without the same potential for human error. Um, it also allows us to do it quicker um, okay. There's no doubt it results in reduced operative time, and I'm happy to go into that if you wish. Um, and that obviously comes with a number of benefits. Um, we've looked at our series. Um, we looked at 60 consecutive implants before introduction of the robot and 60 after. And our main operative time reduced from skin to skin time from 240 minutes mean operative time to 140 so almost halved um, and that has allowed us to add at least one extra case onto our theater list possibly two um, okay. and obviously allows for increased theater utilization productivity which the managers love of course um, and has knock-on effects quicker recovery reduced hospital stay, um, all these things um, important, but the time saving is secondary to the accuracy and safety. And okay. the time saving, in fact, with a robot is is uh, magnified with other cases, the, the main example being 
um, stereoencephalography for epilepsy where the time savings are, are, are huge. Um, that involves putting depth electrodes, uh, again, with pinpoint accuracy um, for the identification of epileptogenic zones for tailored resective surgery for refractive epilepsy. Um, and that requires putting in sometimes 12 or more, even up to 20 electrodes. So compared to the time savings with two electrodes, with deep brain stimulation, putting 20 up to 20, and you can imagine the time savings are, are huge there. Um, and I'd go so far as to say that doing that sort of procedure without the robot, uh, the time it would take would almost be prohibitive, I would suggest. Um, so it sounds like the um, there's less adjustments of the MER um, during the procedure as well. So and then, or you need less examinations during to adjust. Well, personally, I don't use MER, um, okay. and I do surgery asleep, so we don't okay. do um, intraoperative clinical assessments. But a lot of people still do. Okay. Um, so yes, that would be a bonus in that regard. But that's not something I personally. Um, okay do with um with a sleep surgery well let's explore that a little why did you choose that particular technique and not the other so the technique was first developed as an awake technique um as you've alluded to that affords you the ability to assess the patient clinically in the operating theater and uh, that gives some reassurance that you've you've placed the electrode in the right place um, that is further backed up by, you mentioned MAR microelectrode recording. So that's basically electrophysiological evidence, again, that you are in, in the right place. Um, and that was how the technique was developed and is still used uh, in many centers very successfully. There are some concerns with that, however. Um, so up to 40% of patients actually turn down surgery um, if it's done awake um, because of the added stress, potential discomfort. So you're excluding quite a lot of patients from the okay. outset. There is some suggestion that the clinical assessment in the operating theater perhaps isn't as reliable as one might intuitively think in that there is a phenomenon we call the microlesioning effect, which is basically swelling, but swelling on a microscopic uh, level, but swelling nonetheless. And that can have a bearing on the symptoms you're seeing. Um, so if you take a patient with tremor, for instance, which is the typical one that would be done awake, you can often get an immediate improvement in the tremor on the table. But some of that effect could potentially be due to the microlesioning effect okay and therefore falsely reassuring and so you could potentially find afterwards when the swelling subsides that perhaps you're not in the optimum position after all um so that's one concern um with regards microelectrode recording um again provides an extra reassurance but the problem is it involves extra passes through the brain and common sense would dictate that the more times you pass something through the brain, the more potential there is for, for injury. 
and there is some evidence to suggest that the hemorrhage rate with microelectrode recording is higher than than without and i suppose that that stands to reason um when it was first developed these um these techniques were used because imaging wasn't well wasn't even available let alone uh, as good as it is now and so the quality of imaging we have now is such that we can confirm our position quite satisfactorily with intraoperative or even post-operative imaging to confirm our placement. I don't think necessarily you need the awake clinical assessment or microelectrode reassurance. We can do that with imaging now. Thank you for that. Um, I think that if you were giving me a choice, I think I'd go for your asleep version, having heard all that. And 40% is, is a huge, so really it's the technique that you go down to sleep really makes it more accessible to, to more patients. I think so. Is it, is it more challenging to do it asleep? Or is it, why do you think that some people choose to do it awake? Is it just what they know? I think it's just what they've been taught. And uh, okay. as you know, old habits die hard and people get familiar with the technique and quite reasonably okay. they're reluctant to change. I mean, I was taught the technique of doing it asleep and I've maintained okay. that. So I think it's just the way people get used to doing something and it works perfectly well. There's no, you know, aside potentially from the increased hemorrhage risk, um, some would argue then, you know, there's, uh, the clinical outcomes are good. So on the actual training part now, so for all the residents watching this, how do you get into um, being a, a RAS surgeon within uh, neuros neurosurgery? Because if, if they're learning one set of techniques and they're going one down, how do they suddenly swap afterwards? Is there any advice that you can give them during their residency and during their like specialist training to go, okay, you need to start doing this now so when you do qualify, you can start on this pathway to robotics? Yeah, I think because there are so, in the UK, I'm talking about at least, there are not that many centres doing deep brain stimulation of functional neurosurgery. I think it's about 13 centres currently. Okay. So it's a fairly small uh, community and we all know each other pretty well. Okay. Um, there are some units that have their own fellowships, um, but I always encourage any trainees who are interested in um, becoming functional neurosurgeons that they go to as many centres as possible and try and learn as many techniques as possible. Um, so robotic surgery, awake surgery, asleep surgery, traditional frame and arc based surgery i think it's important to to have all these in your um in your armory because uh, the robot good though it is um it's a piece of technology and a piece of kit and they can break down not very often it's fair to say but they can do and if you're not familiar with traditional frame arc based surgery then you've got nothing to fall back on um and I think also if you only learn the robotic technique, then you lose the intuitive sense of perhaps when things aren't quite as they should be. Okay. You're relying totally on the robot and have total have to have total trust in it. 
when you spent years doing the frame and arc based technique and manually inputting coordinates and angles, you get some sort of feel for where the numbers are taking you in 3D space. And you, after a while, you get a feel for when things aren't quite right, and then you go back and change. Whereas with the robot, there's no real need to look at those coordinates or angles. The robot does it for you. And so you perhaps lose that intuitive sense of when things perhaps aren't quite right. Um, I get around that by, I still manually look at the coordinates just to check which you're able to do with the software and just eyeball them. It takes seconds uh, and I find that reassuring. But I think that's one of the problems with the robot is, you know, the reliance on it. And then if you only learn that technique, you've got nothing to fall back on if 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 it's perhaps not quite right. So um, there are plenty of centres around the UK that use the robot and plenty that don't. So um, I encourage the trainees to, to go around and see as many different techniques as possible. Sounds like it's a little like learning with maps and then get a sat nav after. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In fact, I, I tell patients that often it's a bit like sat nav in their brain. It sounds like, because we get asked loads of questions, should we start on the RAS, you know, should we start on this? And it sounds like what you're saying is continue on the fundamentals, uh, learn the frame and arc, get good at that, get the intuition and add the tool of the robot into the repertoire exactly so. after, rather than take the risk of just learning. I suppose it's like just learning an automatic car and you just can't do the manual after. You know, That's forgive the simplicity, analogy, but, yeah. you know, it, it's there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of the, the next stages, so because surgeons are the uh, are the best people to go to feedback to the companies to say, do you know what, you, you could you should really add this. So what is it, you know, without going into company th uh, names or anything, what would you add into the next robot system to really help you during your procedure? That's a difficult one because the robots we use in neurosurgery, they, they're not like, um, you know, Da Vinci robots or things. They don't actually touch the patient. Yeah. They're, they're largely a robotic arm, a stable platform. Um, and so to that extent, they pretty much fulfill that function perfectly fine now. Um, they tend to be quite slow in how they move. Okay. Um, I mean, we're talking seconds, um, but I suppose that would be nice if they sped up a little bit. Okay. Um, but in terms of the function they fulfill, um, uh, or they need to fulfill, I think they do that perfectly well as as they are, if I'm honest. They, they're quite bulky, um, and this is one of the problems um with robots is their storage okay um it's best to try not to move them uh the robotic arm is very sensitive as you know and so moving them can risk a calibration error which uh, is or potentially disastrous so ideally they should be kept in the operating theater in which they're used okay um, so yeah they're quite bulky so it'd be nice to see them smaller. Uh, we're quite fortunate in that um, we use the same theatre for all our okay. surgery cases because we also house the O-arm which we use for the um, stereotactic imaging 
doing so okay. well. So we're quite fortunate, and it's a big theatre, and the robot sits in the corner. Okay. Um, so it has to be moved from the corner to its place of use within the operating theatre, but it doesn't have to be carted down the corridor through lifts okay. and, and all the rest of it. So it just sits in our operating theatre, but... Uh, and we can obviously use the operating theatre then for, for other cases, of course. Um, but I imagine that could be an issue for places with, uh, like some of our theatres are, which are much smaller, you wouldn't be able to do that. So uh, yeah. that is um, a logistical problem, if nothing else. And and let's look at more than just like the physical elements So uh, and cost. How about data capture and analytics and feedback and any kind of... Um, uh, machine learning that that could be added into it as well for adjustments. Any anything there that you could go, Joe? You know what this is on my wish list. Well, I think that's not so much. So the robot links very closely necessarily with the surgical planning software, um, yeah. and so it's that that would that provides the data um, yeah. and the feedback. And it's it's very easy for us to get feedback data. We just co-register our intra-op or post-op image, imaging with a pre-op planning imaging, and we can instantly measure our implantation accuracy. Um, so it's very easy currently to do that. Okay. Um, to get uh, all the data that you need? Yeah. Um, okay. there, there are actually lots of published series um, on implantation accuracy. Okay. Um, and uh, many will demonstrate that the robot has the sufficient submillimeter accuracy uh, of implantation. So, um, yeah, we've been able to do that for some time now. Good. So it sounds like uh, uh, technological-wise, there's, there's there's a lot there. And now I've read one of the challenges in functional neurosurgery is there's just not enough of you. Um, so yeah, it's a, accessibility seems to be a, a, a rather large problem. It doesn't seem to attract um, as many trainees as the other subspecialties. Um, I guess to a trainee, it doesn't seem to be particularly sexy surgery um, when you compare it to things like vascular neurosurgery or skull-based surgery, um, you know, where you get to see lots of anatomy. Um, you don't necessarily get that with functional neurosurgery the the appeal with functional neurosurgery isn't so much the surgery itself it's the satisfaction of the outcomes that you get um, so trying to get that through to trainees is rather difficult when you're a trainee you're excited by you know big open operations where you know you can see all the cranial nerves you can see um the circle of willis you know that that's the thing that tends to attract the trainees um, so, yeah, you're right. Functional neurosurgery is fairly niche and a fairly small branch of uh, neurosurgery. Um, and I'd like to see it. Uh, I'd like to see that change. Um, I think it has heaps to offer. And I yeah. think there's a bright future. There's loads of expanding potential indications for functional neurosurgery. Um, not just with deep brain stimulation, which at the moment we're fairly limited in what we can do in the UK in terms of indications for it. But I think there are also down the line 
potential uh, indications in terms of um, drug delivery. Um, for example, for delivering a chemotherapeutic agent across the blood-brain barrier yep. or delivery of neurotrophic factors for neurodegenerative disorders. Um, yep. All these things are, again, a potential uses of the robot, but at the moment are in an experimental stage. But I think these things are all very exciting and I'd like to see more people come and get involved. And um, I believe that you're the president of the UK Society. Would you like to expand on that a little for me, please? Yeah, so uh, it's the British Society of Stereotactic and Functional Neurosurgery. And uh, because we're such a small group, uh, it's a very close-knit community and we do quite a lot of work together. Um, not as much as I would like, and that's I've only taken over in the last year or so. Um, so I'd like us to become more collaborative in our approach because I think functional neurosurgery is ideally suited to collaborative work and, <clears throat> excuse me, being that individually we're quite small, but collectively we can, we can do some good work together. Um, because the numbers of patients are relatively small, um, it's very difficult to get um, the uh, sufficient quality of evidence that people like NICE um, would like or need. Um, so to work collaboratively would be uh, would be ideal. Um, I'll give you an example of Tourette syndrome. Um, at the moment, we cannot do in the UK. It's not commissioned for uh, deep brain stimulation. It's not commissioned for the treatment of Tourette syndrome. Um, but before that came into being, we did do it. And my own personal feeling and that of others is that it does work. Um, and we did do a study ourselves together with Queen's Square in London, looking at its efficacy um, for Tourette syndrome with, uh, and we found some benefit. But because the numbers are so small, NICE won't recommend it. And so we're a bit stumped. So uh, if we can all club together, um, then I think we can take some steps forward. So that's one thing I aim to do in my in my tenure. Um, and also raise the awareness of the work that uh, my colleagues do. Um, it's often goes unnoticed, even in our own departments, the work that goes on. And some of the work people do is, is really, and I don't exaggerate, it's life-changing. Um, and so I think more people should be aware of that and the benefit it has to offer. And that might attract, attract more trainees. Because if people need to know about these things, it, you, you've just got to put it on when you talk when you, when you talk to people about it, they, they go, wow, that's amazing. You know, and it's perfectly suited to that environment because, uh, you know, we all get videos of our patients for our audits so you video them before you video them after i mean it's perfect um and it's, it's literally often at the flick of a switch uh, it's you know. working with other groups like uh, i was thinking that rather than just surgical groups it's like the epilepsy groups as well it it, it yeah. in terms of cross, cross function and then utilization of technology um and then in in terms of because you said that sometimes functional neurosurgery can be a difficult sell to trainees 
maybe you should be selling it to the math students. <laughs> yeah, maybe I won't stand outside the engineering department of the university. Oh, no. Yeah. Blackguard. <laughs> because then it really is what, what we've learned by speaking to a large number of uh, surgeons over the years is they're starting out love and they're starting out natural abilities really tends to, to go through. So go speak to the people who've got those natural tendencies and say, hey, you, you ever thought yeah. of going into medicine and surgery? Uh, yeah. do, do you like maths? Do you like engineering? This is for you. I'll go on yeah. a recruitment. recruitment yeah. Drive. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's thinking differently uh, and then going, who might, you know, what personality profile might be interested in, in, you know, in doing that? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a good idea. Yeah. Well, um, we'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll get one, we'll get you on YouTube and then do that. Right. I'll look forward to that. And then a, a, a few final thoughts for, for all the, uh, the learners in terms of listeners, sorry, um, going to the future. What's next in a functional kind of neurosurgery? So it's kind of like in 10 years time, what would you help it to see achieve, you know, some, some future predictions from you because you're kind of, you know, you're going to be still working for a long time out of choice. Um, yeah. I can't imagine. I'm I, counting I, down my, the days. Uh, <laughs> no, you love it. You love it. Uh, most most of the people that, uh, that that I speak to on say, so what do you do for fun? You're like, operating's fun. I, I I I love it. So it's definitely the best part of the job, without question. Yeah. 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 And seeing so the outcomes, of course. Yes, yes. Um, forgive me. I, I should should have put that part first. It's <laughs> it's it, it's, but it's the it's it is the love for doing that. Um. So within this, because it's going you're going to be doing it for quite a while. In ten years' time, what do you want to see functional neurosurgery achieving? What kind of indications and in areas that you go you need to look into there? Yeah, I think so. It would certainly be nice to expand. I'm a bit biased in that my uh, I'm very conscious I've talked largely about deep brain stimulation and functional neurosurgery is is a lot more than deep brain stimulation, but that's just my passion. Yeah. Um, so within that, I'd like to see us able to do um, DBS for more indications. At the moment, we can in the UK we can only do it for. Think, 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 globe, think globally, because everyone is from different yeah. countries. Yeah. So, this. but even even globally, you know. Um, the the principal indications are Parkinson's disease, essential tremor, dystonia. Those those are the the foundational indications. But there's potentially um, you know epilepsy, um, pain, depression. Um, it's even been postulated for obesity, um, okay. which in this day and age, if that could be. Um, proven to work then we'd be very busy indeed um so the hypothalamus for satiety yeah is that correct yeah i mean there's no convincing evidence um as yet for it um but some people take the view that anything is with a neural basis is potentially treatable if you find the right target okay so if there is it's not an indication at the moment it may just be that we haven't found the appropriate target um so it'd be nice to see the indications expanded or certainly become um more commonly done 
Now, I would that would that would that kind of research involved a lot more going down the um, F um, MRI route for research? So to, potentially, to and some out. people, yeah. Put, I mean, yes. I mean, and some people are doing that already. Um, so that's an exciting development. Um, imaging and imaging modalities are improving all the time, and we definitely need to maximize that because imaging forms the basis of everything that we do. And if we can narrow down or increase our targets, then then we're all over that. Um, I briefly touched on it earlier, but I really think drug delivery potentially has a lot to offer and uh, is potentially very exciting. Um, being able to get things across the blood-brain barrier, yeah, um, I think is going to be a game changer. Um, as I mentioned earlier, chemotherapy for brain tumors, um, neurotrophic factors for neurodegenerative diseases, you're opening the door to, uh, you know, potentially reversing such diseases. I know that's probably getting carried away, but it's, you know, why not think big? Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, you know, it's the vision and mission, isn't it? You know, if you, yeah, can I mean, if you start big, you might hit something smaller along the way. So, um, I, that excites me. I think over the next 10 years or so, if we can make some inroads into that, um, then I personally think that's very exciting. I know some very progressive oncology companies, so we can definitely put you in touch. Yeah, so we currently collaborate with colleagues in the UK and, and Europe, uh, largely with our using our um, clinical outcomes as regards deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease. So that's my particular passion. Um, so anything we can do to improve our knowledge of the disease. Um, and in fact, one of the new battery um, developments that have recently become available that we implanted a couple of weeks ago now, it's got brain sensing uh, technology and you can actually record uh, local field potentials, believe it or not, from the battery itself. Um, so that's something in Manchester we have a particular interest in and we're, we're looking quite closely at um, to understand both the disease itself and how it responds to deep brain stimulation. So that's something exciting. Hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll be able to get out there in the years to come. And then just moving on to patients a little, um, when um, when you speak to them, what kind of misconceptions do they, do they have about robotic deep brain stimulation? There are usually by the time, with the way our pathway works, by the time they get to see me, they've been right through the pathway. They've been through the okay. MBT discussions. So they're quite on board with the fact that they uh, they might okay. be having surgery. But uh, I think there is quite an understandable reticence um, on patients' part. I think some of them think, have a misguided notion that it's an experimental therapy, even though it's been around since the 1990s. Um, okay. um, people have a notion that it's, it's new and that they're being... Uh, uh, almost experimented on. Um, there's also uh, a notion that it's quite invasive, um, destructive surgery, where in fact it's quite the opposite. Um, and particularly if you do the surgery at the right time, uh, can have, uh, as we've said, quite dramatic 
results, but I think there's still a historical belief, even amongst, dare I say it, our neurology colleagues that uh, refer the patients, there's sometimes a reticence to refer patients for surgery um, because they still have a historical notion that it's, you know, death and destruction <laughs> and should only be a very, very last resort, whereas in fact, it should be done pretty early on, really, um, to maximize uh, the benefits you can get. So I think that in some ways is passed on to the patients so that they are understandably nervous about what they perceive to be really quite major and potentially destructive surgery. So that's a bit of a challenge to, to explain to them what's involved. I think when you explain to them that robotic surgery is being used, however, I think that works in your favor. Okay, good. Um, this is possibly controversial. I don't know. Um, and it's certainly not something I can quantify for you, but it's certainly a sense that I get that when you mention to patients they're having robotic surgery, they seem to develop a sense that they're getting, I don't know, the ultimate in surgical technique and state of the art up to the minute technology. Well, they uh, are, aren't they? Well, they are. To an <laughs> but I think that instills in them a, a belief, um, okay. a confidence, a reassurance, if you like, that they're going to do well. And invariably, then they do. And I think that enhances their experience. Aside from the fact, you know, we mentioned the, the tangible physical benefits of faster recovery, all that, that's bound to positively influence their experience. But I think if we think about the psychological or emotional response to the surgical episode. I think the very fact you mentioned robotic surgery gives them some confidence. Um, I don't know if you've come across a book called uh, The Expectation Effect by Dr. David Robinson. D David Robson, beg your pardon. Heard uh, it, but not read it. But uh, the whole I expectation thought you. process. Okay. Yeah, it's... He describes it far better than I can uh, and provides quite robust evidence for the hypothesis that a patient's expectation um, shapes their experience. Um, and I think that definitely plays a part. Again, I can't give you any um, uh, quantifiable evidence of that, but I'm, I'm sure it plays a part. I, th I think... A good 99.9% .9 of physicians know that it, how they go in changes their thought process. The thought process changes their biochem. Their biochem changes their, you know, yeah. tissue microenvironment. The tissue microenvironment, you know, changes what's going in. And we've got a whole cascade of uh, cortisol and uh, inflammatory markers running through if they're anxious. So that's never going to be a good outcome. If we can change that biochemistry before they go in, much better environment on tissue regeneration afterwards. I mean, going back to one question you asked earlier in terms of changes, it'd be nice to get um, more formal psychological analysis on these okay. patients post-operatively. I mean, we do quite a lot of pre-op um, yeah. psychology workup on these patients. It'd be quite nice to, to look okay. at that as a somewhat more holistic approach, if you like. Well, that's probably uh, where you collaborate with the different societies. Yeah. Because they will be they will be uh, seeing the patients follow up, and then that's where you can you know there is that touch point as well. So it's that that ecosystem between surgery and different disciplines, epilepsy society, uh, Tourette society, Parkinson society, etc. And then we kind of 
you know, go through it, go from go from there and there. Well, I think it sounds like the when you mentioned about the neurologists earlier, sounds like we need to do a few CMEs and we we get you on camera educating the um, the neurology community about the pathways and the time to refer, uh, and then where it's still productive when it's not productive and the different elements of it as well. So, because before we start benefiting more patients, we need to get more referrals to get the patients. Well, yeah, if you can't get the clinicians on board, yeah. <laughs> Okay, we can definitely follow up with some series. Um, uh, Mr. Evans, really thank you for your insights, uh, being very personally open and uh, to really progress forward the, the area of functional and uh, stereotactic neurosurgery. Thank you ever so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast, or GRASP for short. Please subscribe to be updated with all of our new podcasts coming out. If you would like to learn more about robotic assisted surgery, please go to www.roboticsurgerypodcast.com.